Is investor appetite for the Chinese market dwindling? Chip designer Arm flags significant China risks, citing the country's 350 times in its IPO filing. Beijing's espionage scheme to recruit overseas talents back with a new name, this time attracting microchip experts amid U.S. bans. She and Close soon to appear in Forever 21 stores, the two retailers inking a deal to partner up. And Chinese leader Xi Jinping's mysterious absence at South Africa's BRICS summit, triggering speculation over a potential health scare. Plus, another oddity from the three-day summit, a man seen running to catch up with Xi before getting body slammed by security staff. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Thinking of investing in what could be this year's biggest IPO? You might want to think again. A British company's plan to go public is sparking major buzz right now. Called Arm, the company aims to raise $10 billion by selling stocks to the public in a process called an Initial Public Offering, or IPO. It said it plans to list on NASDAQ, one of the biggest stock exchanges in the U.S. But the company is also facing many risks in China, so much so that it used over 3,500 words to describe the problem. Arm is the world's leading chip design company. Over 90% of the world's smartphones use its designs, including iPhone. So what challenges is it facing? Arm gets a quarter of its revenue from China, something the company says makes it particularly susceptible to economic and political risks affecting China. The company appears caught in the middle of U.S.-China tensions. What's more, it doesn't have control of its Chinese business, called Arm China. The main company relies on that China unit to access the Chinese market and bring in revenue. Those concerns have some investors hesitating. One of them told the Financial Times that the challenges listed seem a lot for an investor to digest, adding that Arm is asking the market to buy what it admits are some pretty big China risks. But it's not just Arm that's entangled with the Chinese market. One of its biggest customers, Apple, gets about 20% of its revenue from the country. Two leading U.S. chipmakers, Qualcomm and MediaTek, sell a lot of chips to Chinese customers. America's top chipmaker, Intel, also sourced over a quarter of its revenue from China last year. Poaching talent, the Chinese regime continuing its efforts to get the top U.S. talent in the semiconductor sector through various means to up the country's competitive edge against the U.S. That's as Washington tightens China's access to it. A Reuters investigation finding thousands have been approached in the U.S., but the exact number recruited remains unknown. In the past, China termed the recruitment campaign the Thousand Talents Program. Over the years, the name has fallen out of use, but not the practice. China has quietly revived the campaign under a new name, Qiming or Enlightenment, through which China seeks top talent in fields like semiconductors, including sensitive or classified areas. The goal is to speed up its tech know-how. Officials note talent poaching is not illegal in the U.S., but university researchers could find themselves afoul of the law if they don't disclose ties with Chinese entities while benefiting from U.S. government funds. A Reuters review of official state documents from China revealed local officials are pouring funds into recruitment efforts. None responded to requests for comment. But poaching talent isn't China's only strategy. There's been a massive spike in China's semiconductor equipment imports. 
The Financial Times, noting Chinese customs data, show imports up 70 percent compared to last year, with imports in June and July totaling around $5 billion. Most hailing from the Netherlands and Japan. Both countries have imposed export restrictions as they work with the U.S., aiming to slow China's tech advancement. Japan began enforcing restrictions in July, while the Dutch curbs kick in September 1st. The report, noting the purchases, suggests China aims to increase chip production despite the curbs. Get ready to shop for Shein clothes at Forever 21. The Chinese fast fashion retailer inked a deal with Forever 21 on Thursday, announcing the two are going into business together. But some are calling the partnership fashion's nightmare. NTD's Kevin Hogan spoke to NTD business host Don Ma for details. Don, can you tell us more about the partnership to start? Yeah, sure, uh, Kevin. Uh, first of all, it seems like uh, the partnership could pave the way for Xi'an to sell Forever 21 dresses, jeans, accessories on its website. And, and perhaps eventually Xi'an shops could actually operate inside Forever 21 stores. Um, so this is what the company said, and the Wall Street Journal first reported this. So now the Chinese-founded Xi'an will acquire about one-third interest in Forever 21's operator. And in turn, Forever 21's operator will also become a minority shareholder in Xi'an. So the purpose of the deal is basically to expand Forever 21's distribution on Xi'an's online platform, which, by the way, Kevin, has some 150 million online users. And of course, the, the reverse is also true for Xi'an. It's interesting that these two are partnering up because it just so happens that both Xi'an and Forever 21 have faced strong criticism surrounding their fast fashion production. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Kevin. Um, but more notably with Xi'an, the, the company has faced allegations of, you know, using forced labor from the Uyghur population, uh, mainly whether its goods contain uh, cotton from China's Xinjiang region. You know, on top of that, there has also been allegations of unethical labor practices at its production facilities in China. Uh, Xi'an reportedly shortened a three-week production process to just three days for some items, Kevin. And, and it's, it's, a, it's being accused of making thousands of Chinese workers work, work up to 12 hours a day, and in some cases, over 75 working hours per week. Don, host of Entity Business, thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Did China's top politician just have a health scare? Tuesday, Xi Jinping was absent from a scheduled speech at a business forum. Instead, his commerce minister was sent to read a prepared script. Leaders from Brazil, India and South Africa, with Russia joining online, all witnessed the unusual change. As of Friday, Beijing has given no explanation for Xi's absence. Speculation is rising, with many assuming Xi had a temporary health issue ahead of the speech. According to a report from news outlet The Chinese Global South Project, it's highly unusual for senior Chinese officials to miss scheduled events without warning. Xi Jinping was hospitalized for a blood disease in the brain in 2021. The condition could lead to a stroke or even worse. 
Xi's absence came along another unusual case. Take a look at this video. An anonymous Chinese man is seen chasing Xi Jinping, but was stopped by a South African security crew. The guard slammed the man into the door. Xi turned around to look for the source of the noise, but quickly moved on after the security closed the door. The man was allegedly Xi's translator. A moment later, the door briefly opened and closed again, with Xi pausing again for a look before continuing. Xi kept glancing back, even after greeting the South African president. Besides the awkward scene, India's prime minister spoke to Xi about the border issue, marking the first time he directly brought up the issue with Beijing. The two agreed to speed up efforts to de-escalate between their troops. Japan is releasing treated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Is it safe? Japan says the water won't cause significant harm, but not everyone is convinced. Here's more. Japan has started releasing slightly radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean from the Fukushima nuclear plant. We are planning to release the water continuously 24-7 over the period of 17 days. Japan says it's necessary because storage tanks are full. Neighboring China isn't happy. An extremely selfish and irresponsible action that ignores international public interests. China firmly opposes and strongly condemns this. The same day, China announced an immediate sweeping ban on all aquatic products from Japan. And it's a big decision. China is the biggest market for Japanese aquatic product exports, totaling more than half a billion dollars last year. Japan has requested that China immediately lift the ban. On the other hand, the International Atomic Energy Agency points out that releasing wastewater is common practice around the world. China does it too. The water dispersion is one that is currently in use in many countries, including China, in Korea, in the United States, in France. According to a July report, China has been dumping its own nuclear wastewater into the ocean, and it's over six times more contaminated than Japan's. Amid worries of whether the water is safe, it seems like long waiting lines at sushi restaurants in Hong Kong point to a few being truly concerned there. On the other side of the spectrum, many inside mainland China have voiced fears. Chinese citizens were spotted buying up sea salt over anxiety that the wastewater release could diminish supply. Some online retailers in parts of China ran out of salt on Thursday. An update on an alleged spy case. It started back in July when a retired Canadian police officer was charged with spying for China. Now the Canadian police releasing new details on the retired officer's alleged activities for Beijing. First, Beijing asked retired officer William Meiker to gather information on a Vancouver real estate tycoon named Kevin Sun. Sun was among a hundred fugitives sought by Beijing for suspected economic crimes. It's part of Beijing's global anti-corruption campaign effort called Operation Fox Hunt. But many Western agencies view the campaign as aimed at silencing overseas dissidents. Beyond that, Beijing also asked Meiker to build a dossier on a weaker activist abroad. In 2017, Meiker was asked to obtain information on then-U.S.-based president of the World Uyghur Congress. 
He also allegedly tried using his Canadian law enforcement contacts to aid China in securing the release of Huawei's CFO, Meng Wenzhou, in 2021, and sought to track down a Chinese fugitive living in New York City. Canada has long accused China of meddling through illegal police stations and targeting its lawmakers. Now, Meiker faces two charges. Each of them carries a maximum sentence of two years. More than 80 bills to protect U.S. land. Lawmakers in 33 American states are pushing to regulate foreign ownership of U.S. real estate. They are worried that Chinese entities are amassing swaths of farmland near sensitive military spots, posing a national security risk. NTD's Sam Wong has more details on that. On the local level, Lawmakers across 33 states have put forth 81 bills this year, all aiming to restrict Chinese citizens from buying properties near military bases. Some of those bills are now passed in states such as Alabama, Idaho, and Virginia. Those in support see the land as a national security interest, noting that the Chinese regime could use the land to spy on critical U.S. infrastructure nearby. Additionally, they also fear that the country's food supply could be in jeopardy if too much agricultural lands ended up in the hands of foreign entities. The bills gained attention back in February following a Chinese spy balloon flying across the U.S. before Washington shot it down. Sam Wang, NTD News. Two small cities to the south of Beijing, both engulfed by record flooding since late July when Typhoon Daksuri roared into China. More than a million people have been displaced, while full fatality counts remain unclear. Leaked documents obtained by the Chinese edition of our sister media, the Epic Times, suggest the region has taken more than its fair share of the flood water, hinting at a deliberate sacrifice strategy from the Chinese regime used to protect the country's capital. Let's take a closer look. According to papers from China's Hebei province, officials checked out eight areas in Zhuzhou on July 29th, just before deciding to release flood water from a reservoir. The next day, the province's flood control department took action, releasing two internal documents and setting a meeting. The agenda? To discharge flood water into three districts of the city just south of China's capital, Beijing. Those papers also made it very clear that no officials were to break the news publicly. This implies that either the Chinese regime, or at least the local authorities in Hubei, were aware of the water release in advance and the impact it would have on the areas where flood water was released. Zhao Lanjian is a Chinese citizen journalist on exile. Earlier, Hebei's Communist Party secretary faced online criticism after bragging that his region would become Beijing's moat. But the case isn't just about sacrificing smaller cities to save the capital, a mega city with 22 million people. Communication and compensation have become major issues. Many locals had no idea that they lived in so-called flood storage areas nor were they notified before the flood water discharge. What's more, Zhao pointed to the compensation offered by Beijing for families who lost loved ones in the disaster. The death of a person who was killed by the government's mistaken governance has the same value, the same price as a pig. That's around $3,000, but it goes beyond taking the hit to safeguard Beijing, extending to a sparsely populated city downstream. Called the Xiong'an New Area, it's a project pushed by Chinese leader Xi Jinping, aimed at replacing Beijing in the future. The area is especially vulnerable to flooding due to its low-lying, marshy land area. Zhao points to China's political system as the root of the dire situation.
Another big story to look out for. More details about COVID-19's origin, reportedly censored by Washington. A Sky News exclusive reveals a U.S. probe into the virus origin excluded details scientists allegedly called a smoking gun. Stay tuned for more coming up Monday on China in Focus. But coming up today, 2023, a challenging year for Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping. As China celebrates the repeal of strict pandemic rules, the nation's post-pandemic recovery seems to be stalling. Could China's slowing economy put pressure on Xi's rule? Facing a major debt crisis at home, Xi announced a $10 billion fund to bolster global development. And how should Washington navigate the dynamics? We sat down with Anders Kaur, geopolitical expert and publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, for details. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China's leader is facing a major challenge, a downward spiral in the country's economy. Is his rule in danger? And despite a looming debt crisis at home, Beijing is dumping tens of billions of dollars abroad. What effect will it bring to China's economy? We spoke to Anders Kaur, geopolitical expert and publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, for more. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks. Right now, when we look at China's economy, it seems, especially under Chinese leader Xi Jinping, he's really moving back toward the Mao Zedong era or away from Deng Xiaoping's opening up. It seems it's more an internal circulation type thing. So given that China is the world's second largest economy, how is that going to impact us? Xi Jinping is definitely moving backwards, I'd say, in terms of towards the Mao era. Um, He's increasingly interested, it seems, in uh, invading Taiwan. None of this is good for China's economy uh, or international trade or investment in China. And you can really see the effects. I mean, 99% of the news right now about China's economy is all negative. The doldrums that China's going through are expected to uh, leak out into other countries in the region. And recently there was the BRICS summit or business forum where six more nations are expected to join and the whole goal is to unseat the U.S. and especially the U.S. dollar. And there's a new map out showing that these countries would control about 40 percent of the world's oil. So how likely is that de-dollarization to happen? Beijing seems to have taken the concept of the petrodollar um, very seriously, uh, seeing uh, petroleum as the reason why uh, the dollar is so strong. Um, but I think the reality is there are other currencies that are are strong globally, whether that's the euro, the yen, uh, the, the British pound. Uh, and the reason why I would argue these currencies are strong, along with the U.S. dollar, uh, which is the strongest of the bunch internationally, is because uh, People, investors globally, want to buy things from the most advanced economies where you've got the strongest technologies, the strongest real estate markets, uh, the strongest alternative assets. Um, China is a communist country that targets capitalists. Uh, So obviously your assets are not safe there, though. 
And to your point, the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency, as you mentioned. But it seems now we have Brazil, Argentina, some other countries deciding to potentially trade in the yuan. So what is their benefit? They don't get much benefit. And I think that what's going on is Beijing is pushing this de-dollarization and trade with each other in our own currency so hard that uh, you know other countries will kind of go along with it. But I really don't see that the elites in these countries that are, that are exporting, that are importing, really want those yuan or those rubles or um, you know, other currencies in that block. And they couldn't even agree at this latest meeting to have those some kind of a joint common currency. And I think with all of the new members, it's going to be even harder to have some kind of a joint currency. In the BRICS countries, they're too diverse. They're running into trouble uh, with their invasion plans or their actual invasions. And given that, what is the message that this BRICS group is trying to send out then? Beijing is trying to get, uh, you know, they are trying to replace the United States politically um, on a geopolitical level. Uh, China would like to divide the world into regional hegemonies with itself in the lead and ultimately as a global hegemon. And China is offering some benefits, uh, supposedly, to countries uh, that join the BRICS. So other, it, do, it does have the interest of some other countries, at least enough so that uh, leaders will every few years send them to these BRIC summits. But uh, the on offer is maybe trade privileges or more uh, investment uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, um, or even now uh, collaboration on artificial intelligence. If we look at the U.S. next week, actually, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is set to visit China, the latest in a slew of diplomatic visits. How should we read this? Uh, Gina Raimondo, I, I, I don't expect very much success on her part. There's been a train of Biden administration officials who visited Beijing, whether it's Blinken or Yellen, uh, all trying to calm the waters uh, with Beijing. I don't really see that happening. Um, the, the differences are too stark. What China wants, which is a total change to the international system, system, which it sees as led by the United States unfairly, or even former colonial empires. So there, there's a lot of criticism of Europe uh, as being former colonial empires. And now that China has gotten to the point where uh, its economy is doing pretty well, um, even though lately it's not been, um, it is trying to now reverse and change the order. It's kind of, you could argue that they're back to Mao's global revolution. Um, you know, attempt to promote communism globally or Trotsky's global revolution. Um, but I just don't think that the rest of the world really wants this. I think they see through Beijing's uh, power, power grab globally. And, and I don't think Raimondo will be able to uh, get past those deep structural problems with the U.S.-China relationship. Given the U.S., at least this current administration's focus on talks with China, how should the U.S. engage with China? We need to jointly with our allies, uh, you know, increase tariffs, increase sanctions on China, uh, move our supply chains away from China and to each other, which is called friendshoring. 
Um, and eventually China will get the picture uh, and feel the economic pressure uh, and hopefully reform itself in a, in a more positive way in terms of, you know, maybe even democratizing. And how would that work? I think we would need a change from within China. Basically, we need to gradually increase the economic pressure on China until the elites realize that we're, we mean business and, and they're going to keep losing money uh, and trade and investment um, until they make a change. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you soon.